Chapter Eleven of Monte Cristo's Daughter by Edmund Flagg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: The Beggar and His Mates. A year had elapsed since the events already recorded. Zuleika, having finished her studies at the convent school of the Sisterhood of the Sacred Heart the count of monte cristo had quitted rome and with his family was established in paris in the palatial mansion number twenty seven rue du elder formerly occupied by the count de morcerf he was a member of the chamber of deputies representing marseilles and was wedded to his first love mercedes who had mysteriously reappeared and nursed him through a severe illness which was immediately followed by their marriage the revolution of eighteen forty eight which had placed m lamartine at the head of the provisional government had put power and office within his grasp but he had declined both preferring to work in the wider field of universal human freedom his eminent services during the revolution had rendered him immensely popular with the masses and the fame of his matchless eloquence added to the vast influence he so modestly wielded his colossal wealth which he lavishly used to promote the great cause he championed also tended to make him a conspicuous figure in the political and high social circles of the capital though he strove to court retirement zuleika and esperance fairly adored their mild kindly stepmother who on her side was as devotedly attached to them as if they had been her own children the count noted this mutual attachment which time only served to strengthen and it filled his heart with joy and gratification the family was indeed a happy one and even the servants shared the general felicity mademoiselle d'armilly's influence over captain joliette great as it undoubtedly was had been insufficient to induce that gallant and honourable young soldier to seek a rupture with the wonderful man to whom he was so vastly indebted and whom he so highly revered this had at first caused a coldness between the revengeful prima donna and her admirer but a reconciliation had ultimately taken place between them and they were now man and wife prior to their marriage mademoiselle d'armilly had acknowledged herself to be eugenie danglars and thus the motive of her bitter hostility to the count of monte cristo was revealed she had retired from the operatic stage and had received a large sum of money stated to be a legacy from her father but generally believed to be a gift from the count intended by him in some degree to make amends to her for the sufferings she had endured by reason of his vengeance on the banker danglars the prima donna's brother leon had turned out to be a, a woman masquerading in male attire no other than mademoiselle d'armilly herself eugenie's former music-teacher who had loaned her name to her friend when the latter started on her operatic career these transformations had been immediately followed by another captain joliette discarding his pseudonym and appearing as albert de morcerf paris had talked over and wondered at all this for a week and then had completely forgotten it turning its fickle attention to newer and more engrossing sensations 
albert's marriage and the legacy healed the breach between eugenie and the count of monte cristo and the young couple together with the real mademoiselle d'armilly had been added to the happy family in the mansion of the rue du helder the viscount giovanni massetti had appeared in paris immediately after his reckless visit to zuleika in the convent garden and his wild interview with her there he had gone to the count of monte cristo avowed his love for haydee's child and solicited her hand in marriage he had been told to wait a year a period he had passed he scarcely knew how but it had been an eternity to him an eternity fraught with restless anxiety with alternations between ardent hope and the depths of despair the expiration of his probation found him in the mansion of the rue du helder renewing his earnest suit with the count who had granted him permission to win his daughter if he could the young italian had at once sought zuleika who had welcomed him as her lover and betrothed then a clash had suddenly arisen esperance had expressed his abhorrence of his sister's suitor had given mysterious hints that had recalled the half-forgotten roman scandal and a separation between giovanni and zuleika had ensued the former refusing to speak out and clear himself pleading his terrible oath of silence in the course of his vague unsatisfactory disclosures esperance had unguardedly mentioned the name of luigi vampa and the count of monte cristo had written to the brigand chief requesting such information as he possessed in regard to the impenetrable mystery vampa's reply had been a fearful arraignment of the youthful viscount but zuleika could not believe her lover the depraved and guilty wretch the brigand chief represented him to be asserting that there was something yet unexplained something that would effectually exculpate him could it be reached the count of monte cristo had at first inclined to the belief that massetti was merely the victim of circumstances of some remarkable coincidence but vampa's letter scattered this belief to the winds and he demanded that the viscount should conclusively prove his innocence zuleika had meanwhile banished her lover from her presence but her heart yearned for him and defended him in spite of everything she therefore sent him vampa's letter assuring him of her belief in his innocence and commanding him to prove it to her and to the world thereupon giovanni had instantly quitted paris his sudden disappearance seemed like a flight it caused scandal's thousand tongues to wag remorselessly but although he left no word for her zuleika knew her command had sent him to italy to clear his name and record in her eyes she was firmly convinced that she would see him again that he would return to paris rehabilitated such was the general condition of affairs as affecting the monte cristo family at the time the thread of this narrative is resumed it was the month of july the heat in paris was intense absolutely stifling a white glow seemed to fall from the breezeless yellow atmosphere scorching the very pavements for weeks there had been no rain not the slightest sign of a cloud in the pitiless heavens the streets were almost deserted even that favoured thoroughfare of fashion the rue de la paix boasted of but few promenaders the only spot in request was the bois de boulogne 
with its magnificent trees and deliciously shaded avenues the champs-elysees throughout its entire extent from the place de la concorde to the arc de l'etoile was like a sun-swept desert and its picturesque marchands de coco with their shining mugs snow-white aprons and tinkling bells found only a limited demand for their licorice water and lemon juice while even the théâtre de guignol failed to arrest the rare passers in the vast garden of the monte cristo mansion notwithstanding its power elsewhere the sun seemed to have been successfully defied there the trees shrubs and plants were not parched but preserved all their freshness and beauty suggesting the coolness of early spring rather than the sweltering heat of midsummer while the parterres were brilliant with gorgeous bloom and penetrating perfumes loaded the air near a little gate opening upon the rue du helder early one morning zuleika and mademoiselle d'armilly were sitting on a rustic bench beneath an ample honeysuckle-covered arbour they had come to the garden from the breakfast-room to rest and chat after their meal the former music-teacher was telling her companion of her stage experience and of the many adventures she had met with during her operatic career in the midst of a most interesting recital she suddenly paused fixing her eyes upon the little gate with a cry of surprise and terror zuleika followed the direction of her glance and gave a start as she saw leaning against the bars of the gate a sinister-looking man clad in dusty tattered garments who was peering at her companion and herself with eyes that glittered like those of some venomous serpent when he noticed that he was observed the man pulled a greasy weather-stained cap from his head disclosing a profusion of matted whitened locks and stretching a grimy hand with hooked fingers that resembled the claws of an enormous bird through the bars said in the hoarse tones peculiar to the outcasts of the streets charity for the love of god the man seemed more like a thief than a beggar nevertheless mademoiselle d'armilly who was the first to recover her self-possession drew a few sous from her pocket and advanced to place them in his palm as she came closer to him the mendicant acted very strangely instead of taking the money he suddenly withdrew his hand staring at mademoiselle d'armilly with an expression of mingled terror and amazement upon his evil countenance then he quickly turned from the gate thrust on his cap and started off at a rapid pace mademoiselle d'armilly also was singularly affected she dropped the sou became ashy pale and would have fallen to the ground had not zuleika sprung to her side and caught her in her arms what is the matter louise cried the girl astonished at the beggar's behaviour and still more so at the effect he had produced upon her companion i have seen a ghost replied mademoiselle d'armilly in a startling whisper a ghost yes oh let us quit the garden at once the ghost of whom i dare not say come come i cannot remain here another second how fortunate that young madame de morcerf was not with us she would have been driven mad albert's wife you talk wildly louise what interest could she feel in that wretched outcast what interest do not ask me i cannot i must not tell you oh it is terrible 
will you tell albert's wife of what you have seen no a thousand times no she must not even suspect that man's return from the grave i entreat you to say nothing to her or any one else i shall be silent upon the subject but that beggar was not a ghost he was a most substantial reality something frightened him away something doubtless that he saw in the street perhaps a sergent de ville your recognition of him was fancied it was not fancied but we must not stay here i would not see that face those eyes again for worlds Zuleika took her friend's arm and walked with her towards the mansion endeavouring as they went along to reassure her to reason her out of her fright her efforts however proved altogether futile mademoiselle d'armilly was utterly unnerved and at once retired to her room notwithstanding her willingness to believe that mademoiselle d'armilly had been deceived with regard to the identity of the beggar and in her confusion had confounded him with some one else zuleika could not altogether shake off a feeling of vague apprehension of ill-defined terror when she thought over the singular conduct and wild agitation of the former music-teacher in the quiet and solitude of her own chamber why had mademoiselle d'armilly been so stricken at the sight of the mendicant why had she so earnestly entreated her to say nothing of what had occurred to any one and especially to avoid all mention of the matter to albert de morcerf's wife mademoiselle d'armilly had seen too much of the world to be frightened by a mere trifle was it possible that the ragged outcast had been in some way identified with young madame de morcerf's operatic career that he had been her lover the latter supposition would furnish a plausible cause for the former music-teacher's terror as the reappearance of a lover might lead to disclosures well calculated to seriously disturb the happiness and tranquillity of the newly made husband and wife zuleika had heard that eugenie had been much courted during the period she was on the stage that she had numbered her ardent admirers by scores but this man seemed too old too forlorn to have recently been in a position to scatter wealth at the feet of a prima donna besides mademoiselle d'armilly had spoken of him as a ghost and had appeared to refer him to a period more remote zuleika had also heard of mademoiselle danglars broken marriage contract away back in the past could this beggar be the scoundrel who had masqueraded under the assumed title of prince calvacanti and had so nearly become her husband perhaps but even if he were that unscrupulous wretch what harm could his reappearance do at this late day now that the old story had been thoroughly sifted and almost forgotten albert was well aware of all the details of the calvacanti episode and it was hardly likely that anything further could be exposed that would disturb either him or his wife no the grimy white-haired sinister-looking stranger could not be the quondam prince he was someone else someone more to be feared but who was he if not the miserable son of villefort zuleika was more perplexed and disturbed than she was willing to admit even to herself if she could only speak with the count of monte cristo tell him all some explanation of the mystery might doubtless be obtained an explanation that would at least calm her vague fears but that was impossible her promise to mademoiselle d'armilly to be silent sealed her lips as effectually with her father as with young madame de Mercerf whatever might be her fears she would have to bear them alone 
or at the best share them with mademoiselle d'armilly who evidently would give her no further satisfaction meanwhile the man who had caused all this trouble after having almost run quite a distance along the rue du helder utterly oblivious of the attention he drew to himself from the rare passers turned into the rue taitbout thence reached the rue de provence and finally found himself in the cité d'antin there he made his way into a small drinking-shop or caboulot patronized by some of the worst prowlers about that section of paris the room he entered was unoccupied save by a slatternly young woman who sat behind the counter reading a greasy copy of the gazette des tribunaux the man went to the counter and throwing down the price demanded a glass of brandy which he swallowed at a gulp then he addressed the slatternly young woman who with her paper still in one hand was half smiling half scowling at him is waldman here he asked with the air of a man who feels himself thoroughly at home yes answered the young woman resuming her seat and her reading he is in the back room playing piquet with peppino beppo and Sybecker. good said the man i am in luck i scarcely expected to find them all in at this hour with this he opened a glazed door and stepping into the back room closed it behind him the players who were seated at a table with mugs of beer beside them glanced up quickly from their game as he came in and one of them a heavy-framed beetle-browed german called out to him speaking french how now bouche de miel what is the matter you are out of breath and as pale as if you had been shadowed by an agent de la sureté i have not been shadowed waldman answered the beggar or bouche de miel but i have made a startling discovery the players at once put down their cards and leaned forward to hear they were a rough desperate-looking set on their ill-omened and sunburnt visages thief could be read as plainly as if it were written there and perhaps also the still more significant word assassin two of the men were italians evidently the peppino and beppo referred to by the slatternly young woman at the counter in the outer room besides waldman there was another german this was Sybecker, tall slim with yellow hair and moustache he had some claim to good looks his attire was quite respectable compared to that of the rest had he not possessed a pair of restless demoniac eyes he might have passed for a person of tolerably fair repute but those glaring tiger-like orbs betrayed his true character and stamped him as a very dangerous member of the criminal fraternity Walman appeared to be the leader of the coterie the italians wore blue blouses but the distinctive garment of the parisian workman could not conceal a certain brigandish air that was second nature to them let's hear about your startling discovery bouche de miel said Waldman. take a seat and tell us the beggar dropped upon a wooden chest saying in a tone of deep dejection as he did so much as i long to take a hand in to-night's little job i'm afraid you'll have to let me off stuff cried Walman. you are afraid of meeting that terrible fellow the count of monte cristo but the startling discovery out with it man yes the discovery the discovery demanded the others impatiently well said bouche de miel i went to the rue du helder this morning as agreed upon and made a survey of monte cristo's mansion nothing easier than to get in as no watch is kept at night and the count is not in the least suspicious although he has millions of francs in his safe to say not a word of jewels and other valuables 
as i was about leaving the premises i stopped at a little gate giving access to the garden from the street having noticed that the key had been carelessly left in the lock on the outside i was leaning against the gate taking a wax impression of this key which would assure us entrance without trouble when happening to glance through the grating into the garden i saw two women they had noticed me and seemed greatly frightened instantly i thrust my hand through the bars and asked for charity one of the women summoned up sufficient courage to arise and approach me she was about to give me some money when suddenly she recognized me in spite of all the changes in my appearance i also recognized her and hastened away as rapidly as i could well what of all this said walman calmly it amounts to nothing whatever it amounts to so much that i cannot go with you to monte cristo's house and run the risk of meeting that woman walman gave vent to a loud laugh the other smiled i never before heard of a frenchman who was afraid to meet a woman said siebecker much amused i tell you i cannot go you must let me off said bouche de miel obstinately what cried peppino do you allow a woman to stand between you and your vengeance against the count of monte cristo remember luigi vampa's bill of fare bouche de miel glared at the italian savagely there is no need for me to remember it returned he bitterly i have never forgotten it neither have i forgotten your share in that infamous business he added between his teeth it was my duty to do as i was bidden retorted peppino i will have my revenge on you yet muttered bouche de miel menacingly we shall see answered the italian defiantly walman interposed and said sternly no quarrelling we are brothers and are united for mutual gain bouche de miel you must go with us to-night i order you to go and will take no excuse besides if as peppino says you have vengeance to gratify against the count of monte cristo the opportunity is too precious for you to neglect it at any rate go you shall where is the wax impression of the key bouche de miel handed the german a small package which he took from his pocket walman gave it to siebecker directing him to fashion a key in accordance with it in the meantime the beggar had been thinking his face showed that a fierce struggle was taking place in his mind a struggle between fear and a burning desire for revenge the latter ultimately triumphed and the beggar rising from the chest went to the table bringing his fist down upon it with a resounding blow i will accompany you mates he said with wildly flashing eyes and in an excited voice monte cristo robbed me ruined me and drove me into the world a penniless vagrant i will have my revenge spoken like a hero said walman enthusiastically we will meet at the little gate on the rue de helder at midnight siebecker will give you the key bouche de miel and you will open the gate you need not fear recognition even if you should meet the woman you have spoken of face to face for you will be masked like the rest of us if you are anxious about her safety i will tell you now that we only want monte cristo's millions we do not mean murder but what if murder should be necessary if it cannot be avoided waldman shrugged his shoulders then we must protect ourselves he answered phlegmatically thereupon the coterie of miscreants separated to pass away the hours as best they might until the time for the brilliant stroke they meditated arrived End of chapter eleven